Follow along with me if you would. I'm going to, uh, most of the scriptures, once we get into the points this morning that you have on your outline there, will be on the screen again because we are going to look at, at many scriptures this morning. But I want to focus our attention initially on Matthew chapters 16 and 18, starting in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We left off last week with the statement that the church, that is the body of Christ, the local gathering of believers, is precious to the Lord. It was purchased by Christ's blood, and I believe Titus 1 and 2, you can read it later, tells us that God promised to redeem from sinful mankind a bride for his son before he ever created us, which means the cross is plan A. The church is plan A. This is God's design, and it was bought with the price of Christ's blood, that, that, that sinners like you and I would have the penalty of our sin paid for by the holy God, whom is the very one we needed saving from. We didn't just need saving from our sin. We needed saving from the wrath of God upon our sin. And the very God we needed saving from is the God who saved us by his death and resurrection and by faith. In Christ, God, uh, God by, by, by faith in Christ, God places us in Christ, and his death and his resurrection become ours. And so we left off with the fact that the body of Christ is precious, and it is purchased by Christ's blood. But I want to ask the question this morning, is membership in the Bible? Is membership in the Bible? And I want to admit that this is a touchy subject. I'm not really sure why? I would guess maybe that somewhere along the line, people have been hurt. I would remind us maybe of one of the points I made last week before we dive in, and that is to say, I do not believe 
that, that the pastor or elder of the church is the final earthly authority in the church. I believe that the leadership of the church is accountable to and responsible to the membership of the local church. And so there, there has to be some way of recognizing that. And I understand that not everyone will see things the way I see them, and that's okay. We don't always have to agree on everything. We have to agree on the main things. And this is not one of the main things. But everything that is in Scripture is an important thing. And I believe that this is an important thing. I confess to you at the start of this that there is no verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt have church membership. However, let me ask you a question. Does, does, is the only binding part of Scripture on us the commands? Is it only commands in Scripture that inform our lives? Or let me give you an example. You will not find an example, you, you will not find anywhere in Scripture where it says, you shall not marry two wives. Should we be okay with polygamy? You know what you won't find in Scripture? You won't find any example where some guy marries two women and it goes well for him. You just won't. And none of us wonder why, right? But, but is the fact that, that the, the example is set for us, that God designed a marriage to be between one man and one woman, and that the man should leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, not his wives, and that anybody who has wives, it does not go well for him, is that enough for us? When the early church sets an example for us, are we to follow it? I think that some things that are not commanded in Scripture are to be reasoned in Scripture. We're told clearly in Scripture, come, let us reason together. And this is exactly what the church did in Acts 15. Gentiles were being saved, and the question before the church was, do Gentiles follow the law or do they not follow the law? And God didn't give specific revelation to the apostles. We call Acts chapter 15 the Jerusalem Council on the matter. They met, they prayed, they studied the scriptures, and they came to a conclusion. And so that is what I want us to do today. I want us to, to, uh, to reason together from scripture and to come to an inclusion, conclusion together. Now, I will say this before we start, and that is that the New Testament does not imagine anywhere a believer that is disconnected from meaningful fellowship in the local church. I'm going to say that again. The New Testament does not give any evidence anywhere of a believer that is disconnected from meaningful fellowship in the church. I'm going to give you two proofs. Number one, from the beginning, I believe the church, these are not uh, up there yet. Number one, from the beginning, the church kept membership roles. The church kept membership roles. Uh, these verses aren't up there, but I'll read them to you. Acts 2.41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. How do we know that there were 3,000 souls added to the church that day? Somebody was counting. Somebody was counting the fact that there were new people there, about 3,000, who had not previously been there, who were now saved. Acts 2.47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
They were being numbered. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Once again, they're counting. 1 Timothy 5, 9. Instructions on how to care for widows who could not care for themselves. Let a widow be enrolled. There has to be something formal and official to be enrolled in before you can enroll somebody. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and the verse goes on from there. But there were roles kept in the church. Proof number two, the New Testament epistles uh, are, are, no New Testament epistle is written outside of the context of the local church. All the letters in the New Testament are written to churches, with the exception of four. The first one, well, the first two would be First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. First and Second Timothy and Titus are pastoral epistles. They were written to Timothy, who was pastoring at Ephesus, and Titus, who was on Crete, uh, doing work that Paul had left him to do there. And those were instructions about the local church. Uh, Philemon is the one book that is written to uh, an individual who is not uh, seemingly in church leadership. But that book is inextricably linked to, uh, to the book of Colossians, and those two were sent together, and Philemon would have received that letter inside the gathering of the local church. And so Philemon doesn't even make any sense outside of the gathering of the local church. No New Testament epistle is written outside of the context of, of the church. And so, so the, the New Testament does not imagine anywhere a, a believer disconnected from the body. But, but must it be membership? Must it be membership that we have before us? Well, I don't know, but let me, I want to share a few points with you that might point to uh, why we practice and exercise membership in the local church. Number one, and this is on the screen and in your outline, by membership, the local church recognizes one's spiritual state. By membership, the local church recognizes one's spiritual state. Now, Follow along with me as we work our way through Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Again, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. This was an area, as I mentioned last week, that was rife with pagan worship and idolatry. And and so he brings them into this area that's known for being polytheistic, many gods being worshipped there. And he asks his disciples, not who do you say that I am, who do other people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, they all are getting it wrong. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You you are the Messiah. You are the one who came to save us, and you're not, not just a man. You are the Son of the living God. Peter recognizes both the full humanity and the full deity of Christ in this statement. And not only those two things, but the purpose for which Christ came, and that is to be the Messiah. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that is Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... Now, there's some wordplay going on here, and I tell you, you are Peter, a noun that occurs in a masculine form in the Greek. And on this rock, Jesus shifts the gender of the words. Words in Greek have gender. If you speak Spanish, you get this. If you don't, I'm sorry. Come see me later if it's confusing. But words inherently have gender in Greek, and Jesus changes the gender. 
And what happens when he does this is he's no longer referring to Peter because these would be in what we call, in Greek, what we call out of concord. They're not connected. We we see this in some places in Scripture on purpose. The word for spirit in in Greek, pneuma, spirit, breath, wind, all the same word. It's a a neuter uh, noun. It does not have gender. But the Holy Spirit is always referred to as a he, not an it. And that's on purpose. Well, here Jesus on purpose changes the gender of this word, and he says on this rock, referring back to Peter's confession, not Peter himself. On this rock, on the confession that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What in the world are keys to the kingdom of heaven? Well, the first question before us is, what do keys do? Anyone? They unlock things. They they open doors. And in opening doors, they let people inside or keep them outside of something. I will give you keys to the kingdom of heaven. And now we get into some really weird stuff going on in Greek. So hold on with me and I'll try and explain this to you. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What this sounds like and what this has been twisted to mean in some traditional church teachings is that the church is responsible for letting people into and out of the kingdom of God. And that is not at all what Jesus is saying here. He stacks up a couple of, of verbs here. He gives us a future indicative, something that will happen in the future, followed by a perfect participle. What the heck does all that mean? Let me explain to you what perfects do. Perfects uh, are these strange words, this, this past tense verb that allows us to refer to something in the present. It's a past tense action, but it has implications for the present. Now, let me give you an example of what this means. If, if we had gone on vacation and we come home late one uh, Saturday night and there's no groceries in the house because we've been gone and I know I've got to be at church early in the morning and we get up and there's no food in the house and I tell Jennifer, when, when we're done this morning at, at church and we come home, I'm going to be hungry. And she plans to go to the store before I get home. She might say something to me like, I will have gone to the store. I will, future, have gone past to the store. Now, is she just giving me a fun fact? I'm going to be hungry. Oh, I'm going to go to the store. Oh, that's nice, but what does that have to do with anything I'm saying? No, no. What this is, is it's a perfect tense. And it's referring to an event that happens in the past with implications for the present. The fact that she will have gone to the store means that when I get home, there will be food in the house. So when Jesus here, follow along with me, when he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, I will give you keys to open and close doors to the kingdom of heaven, 
And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, though linguistically the church comes first in the orders, as as we read these words, whatever you, the church, bind on earth will be bound in heaven. The church come first and heaven comes second. What Jesus is doing is, is he's not putting things in that order. He's not saying that the church will let people into heaven and out of heaven. He's saying, I'm going to give you keys, and with these keys, you will recognize on earth what has already been recognized in heaven. Are we thoroughly confused yet? I hope not. What Jesus is saying here is not that the church lets people into heaven and out of heaven, but that the church exercises keys to open doors to let people into something based upon their state already in heaven. And so how does the church know who to let in? Well, it's those who make the same profession as Peter. And so when people profess You are the Christ, the son of the living God, and when you, according to our bylaws and constitution, sit down with an elder and share your testimony and make that profession, that elder has been authorized, really the church, we we do this corporately, it's why no person meets with just one elder, why somebody meets with two elders or pastors before they can be let in. We, We want to confirm this profession of faith, and once that profession of faith has been made, we unlock the door, we open it up, and we say, welcome in. And we do that through membership. This gives great confidence to people. Membership is one of those things that should should give confidence to you in your faith. Somebody, more than one person, has heard your profession of faith. They have heard your story. And they have welcomed you into the church because you have made the same profession as Christ. And so by membership, the local church recognizes one spiritual state. We say we see your standing in heaven and we recognize it here on earth. But secondly, by discipline, the local church corrects its errors in membership. What happens when we get it wrong? What happens when we use the keys to the kingdom and let somebody into membership in, in the local church? But then they prove through the way that they live that they're not genuinely saved. Well, that's the next set of instructions that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 18. I think one of the things that Matthew chapter 18 teaches us here is that that the defining mark of a believer is repentance. Even if sometimes it comes slowly. And so if a brother sins, if somebody who bears the name of Christ, if a brother in Christ, keys have been used, they've been let into the church, if they sin against you, go tell them. If they still don't listen, take somebody with you. If they still don't listen, take, tell it to the church. I don't think this is just a matter of gossip. I think this is a matter of, you know, somebody in the church um, decides that they're leaving their spouse and they're going to go move in with somebody else, I'm going to go to that person and correct them. And when they don't respond, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to take somebody with me and I'm going to go correct them and say, this is not good for you. This sin will destroy you. And if they still don't respond, we tell it to the church. 
not as a means of gossip, but a means of, of unleashing the church to go get that person. Imagine if every person, every member in the church upheld their spiritual responsibility to go correct that person. There would be incredible influence to repent, to be restored to us. The language Jesus uses of the repentant brother or sister in here is one of treasure. When somebody leaves the church in unrepentant sin, do you understand that going and pursuing them and restoring them to the church is treasure to the church? Because that's what Jesus says here. And so we unleash the church to go call them to repentance, to be restored to Christ and to us. And if he still refuses, then you treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, you treat him like an unbeliever. But then look what Jesus says in verse 18 of Matthew 18. He says the exact same language he just told us in chapter 16. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose, whatever you let go of, whatever you destroy, is really what this word can mean, on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. By membership, the church welcomes in those who have made the same profession of faith as Peter. And by discipline, the church removes them from fellowship when we get it wrong. Because heaven never gets it wrong. Only God can see the heart of somebody. Only God can see their faith. But sometimes we we get it wrong. And so when the church welcomes somebody into membership who through willful sin and unrepentance proves themselves to, to not be a believer, we let them go. Thirdly, by membership... And subsequently discipline, this is the first two points, and this is really important. The local church tells the world who represents Jesus. Is that up there? There we go. (laughs) By membership and subsequently discipline, the local church tells the world who represents Jesus. I hope we understand that, that membership is not about Control. At least it's not about how I can control you. If anything, membership gives you control over me. But membership is not about control. Membership is about witness. Membership is about telling the world who represents Jesus. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 Um, There's gross sexual sin going on in the the church here. It it, it seems that a a man is sleeping with his stepmom and he is bragging about it. Paul says this boasting is not good. Verse 6, this is not going to be up there. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You can't let that sin stay in the church because you put a little leaven in some dough and the whole thing's going to rise. You put a little sin in the church and the whole thing's going to be affected. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. This is really interesting. If I hung out with the kind of people Jesus hung out with, I'd probably get fired. That's the reality of it. 
But notice that of those people, none of them professed to be believers. And once they did profess to be believers, their behavior changed. Paul is saying, hey, the world, they're going to act like this. And the only way to avoid people who act like this in the world is to be completely removed from the world. That's not what God has left us here for. But, but if somebody bears the name of brother and they're guilty of these kind of flagrant, unrepentant sins, don't have anything to do with them. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Now, the next verses are not going to sit well with our modern appetites, but here it is in the word of God, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? The answer? Nothing. The church has no responsibility to judge those outside of the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Brothers and sisters, inside the church, the words don't judge me are never your friend. They're almost always seeking permission to sin. It is those inside the church whom we are to judge. Verse 13, God judges those outside Purge the evil person from among you. Why would we do this? To protect the witness of the church. To make a clearly distinct line between those who are inside the church and those who are outside the church. To make a clear line between those who represent Jesus by their lives and words and those who do not. And so by membership and subsequently discipline, the local church tells the world who represents Jesus. Fourthly, we're going to continue on in this passage at the end, and maybe that will clear up a little bit. But fourthly, by membership, not attendance, the local church defines who is inside and outside the church. By membership, not attendance, the local church defines who is inside and outside the church. Turn with me, stay in 1 Corinthians 14. Again, it will be up on the screen if you don't have your Bible here and you should have a Bible with you. But um, chapter 14, uh, chapters 12 through 14 are all about spiritual gifts and, and how the church is to exercise spiritual gifts. And we're told that, that uh, spiritual gifts aren't given for the edification of the individual. Uh, it, spiritual gifts are never given to make me look good. They're, they're given to the church uh, for, the, for the building up of the body, for the common good. And the Corinthians were using theirs to promote themselves rather than to promote unity in the church. But here in verses 20 through 25, uh, in speaking of tongues and the abuse of tongues, uh, Paul gives some instructions. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written by people of strange tongues, And by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign for unbelievers, is not, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. In other words, prophecy 
which is what I'm doing now, not the giving of new truth, but the speaking forth of the truth that God has already given us, is for believers. Preaching the word in other languages is for unbelievers. This is what missionaries do. They, they take the word of God to places where the word has not been shared already, and they preach it in their language. But here in the church, we, we speak forth the truth of God, and that's for believers. Verse 23, if therefore... The whole church comes together and all speak in tongues if it's chaos and outsiders or unbelievers enter. That means somebody can enter the church and still be an outsider. Entering the assembly of the local church did not make this person an insider. Because an outsider or unbeliever enters... Will they not say that you are out of your minds? If this is chaos, if everybody's talking, if if we're speaking over one another, if there's not order in worship, people might look at us and say, this is crazy. As I said last week, if you've ever watched TBN and seen some of what's gone on there and said, man, this is crazy, I think Paul would give a hearty amen. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Membership, not attendance, defines who's inside and outside of the local church. Fifthly, by membership, the church knows who is responsible for, for selecting leaders and from whom to select leaders. By membership, the local church knows who is responsible for selecting leaders and from whom to select leaders. In Acts chapter 6, a problem arises. There's two types of widows in the church in Jerusalem. Jewish widows and, and Gentile widows. And some of the widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Uh, Verse 6, chapter 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's Greek, uh, by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, that's Jewish, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. In other words, almost as soon as the church was founded, race presented a problem in the church. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. I think, if you would permit me the boldness to say this, they saw the word of God as the fix to that problem. And they did not rush to give up the preaching of the word to attend to social justice issues. But neither did they neglect such issues. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you Seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to the prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. All Greek names, by the way. They picked Greek men to fix the problem of Greek neglect in the daily distribution. They set, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So the church nominated its leaders, the elders affirmed those leaders. You may have read that in our constitution, at least I hope you have read that in our constitution. But by membership, the church knows who is responsible for selecting leaders and from whom to select leaders. 
I know of a church uh, that's, uh, that was very near and dear to part of my family who uh, the, the, the senior pastor no longer being there, um, uh, the youth pastor wanted to become the next pastor. This church had no formal membership. And so on the day of the vote, his whole family showed up from wherever they were, having not been regular attenders of this church, to vote him in. By membership, the local church knows who is responsible for selecting leaders and from whom to select leaders. And sixthly and finally, by membership, the local church protects the Lord's table. By membership, the local church protects the Lord's table. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is following right on the heels kind of of, of the instruction about the removing the, the sin, sinning brother from among us. Purge the evil person from among you, Paul says. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 34, we see some startling things here. Whoever, therefore, after giving instructions about partaking in communion, keep that word in mind, whoever, therefore, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That's, that's strong language. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, I think we take this verse often to mean, I, as an individual, am supposed to evaluate myself and whether or not there's sin present in my life before approaching the table. I think that's a healthy practice. I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. Look what he says. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What body is he referring to? I think he's referring to uh, not, not the physical body of Christ, nor the elements before us, but to you and me. To the people gathered here. Go back to verse 17 in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is what he says as he begins his instructions on communion. He says, but in the following instructions I do not commend you. Because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And then he presents to us the problem of division in the church and coming to the Lord's table. In chapter 10, we're told because, verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. I think in a very real sense, coming to the table together is what creates a local church. It's not just bumping into each other at home. Without the right preaching of the gospel, without spiritual authority, without baptism, or without communion, you don't have a local church. Your small group that meets on Sunday mornings and substitute for the church is not a church. If you want that to be your church, withdraw your membership, get some authority, preach the word, practice baptism and communion, and you'll be a local church. But but Paul's addressing a division here. And he says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
Now listen to this. This is how seriously God takes it. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. In other words, the Lord will put people to death to protect his table. Should we not be incredibly careful with the body of Christ? This is why church discipline historically has been called excommunication. Because when you want to remove somebody from the unity of the local church, you excommunicate them. You remove them from 1 Corinthians 10, 17, the thing that binds a church together. Brothers and sisters, when you approach the Lord's table, if you are not carefully considering how you approach not only the table, but the body of Christ, the local church, you may bring about God's discipline upon yourself. I'm not going to presume what that discipline may be. Verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 11, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Oh, even when God brings discipline for failing to rightly discern the body, it is for our good. And what a grace and kindness of God. But membership tells us who is allowed at the table. The Bible does not say thou shalt have church membership. And maybe there are other ways of of doing what I see here in God's word. But historically, for a couple thousand years, the church has used membership to do what we clearly see in Scripture. God has made the church not an organization, but an organism. A living group of people who are formally connected to one another in membership, who are accountable to one another, who are responsible to and for one another. Trinity Baptist Church is a formally recognized body of believers, recognized in heaven, recognized on earth, who are covenanted together for the glory of God and to do spiritual good for one another. I want to leave you with this one quote from Edward Klink. To talk about Jesus and not his body, the church, is not to talk fully and rightly about Jesus at all. You cannot just have a spiritual relationship with Jesus without real connection to his physical body. We make that connection through membership. If you're interested in exploring some of this more, there's a book we're giving away. It's out on the... the, the um, the info table in the lobby. We should have more showing up sometime here in the near future. I'm not sure where they are. Called Rediscover Church. You're free to take one of those as long as you will actually read it. If you're not going to read it, don't take it. Leave it for somebody else uh, to, to read. And there's uh, in, the, in the coffee corner, there's a bookshelf, and we've got some highlighted books up there as well. But again, no, no single thou shalt have church membership. But I believe when we reason together, we can find some good reasons to have church membership. It gives confidence to believers. It, it gives correction to unbelievers when we let them in and see that they don't belong. It protects the church's witness. 
It defines who, who we are to select leaders from and who is to select leaders. By the way, uh, in 1 Peter, we're told to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It also gives your church leaders a, a boundary, a definition that, that, that lets them know who they're responsible for and to as well. And it protects the Lord's table. It binds us together. Uh, you know, I guess, um, forgive me, I'm going to use one more analogy here. Uh, I did not put this in my notes, but um, it's been interesting in COVID to see the fact that, uh, that married couples, married couples have survived COVID much better than non-married couples living together. I'm not surprised because I've read God's word. However, I do think it's interesting to see that that, that that official binding covenant of marriage has real effect. Far more people who are not married have split during COVID than those who are married. It's easy to church hop at the whim of your preferences when there's no real covenant together in the body of Christ. But when you've bound yourself to a local body, when it's not easy to get out, you weather the hard things. And and that's good for us. It's good for us. May we think so highly of the body of Christ, his bride. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word that, that instructs us not only in command, but also in example. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the goodness of of what we see in your word and how we practice it as as membership, that we would see that there's great value in belonging to one another, officially and formally, connecting ourselves to a body of Christ, that we might be responsible to one another and dependent upon one another and do good for one another, that we might protect the witness of the church and, and your table that we might have great confidence as members of our spiritual state and that those who maybe at times need correction because of their unrepentant sin might repent and be welcomed back to us with joy. Lord, let us see that these things are not trivial, but that they matter greatly for unity and life and joy in the church. And that's ultimately what all of this is about, Lord, that we might have joy. Give us great joy as members of one another in this this living organism that you call the church. It may be for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. today and we won't be quiet we shout out your praise there's joy in the house of the lord our god is surely in this place and we won't be quiet we shout out your praise we shout out your praise we shout
Chris is going to close us out. Bill is going to be our service host, but he's home with a headache. But I failed to introduce Jared and Carrie and their son Caleb to you all today. I asked them to come lead us in worship today, and they graciously agreed. And you guys, you all know Matthew. He's, you know, he's a fixture. Um, I don't think we need to introduce him. But thank you for serving us this morning. Yeah, thank you guys so much for guiding us in worship. You can have a seat if you want. Uh, uh, as we transition from being the church gathered to being the church scattered, just a couple of things that we want to uh, share with you. One, you know, want to remind you about your, your connection card. It's such a valuable way for us to be able to stay connected to you. It's a valuable way for you, too. It's a great way for you to just uh, share things that are going on in your life, your prayer requests, and praises. And man, we as a staff, we faithfully pray for you each and every week and, and love to be able to, to share in those things with you. So I want to encourage you that. If you're a guest too, boy, we'd love for you to use that card just to, to get to know us. It's a, it's a great way for you to start to connect to us. And um, you also, you know, want to make sure that you know you've got the opportunity each and every week to give, to contribute to uh, the things that God is doing here. And I uh, want you to really be in diligent prayer about your role in that. If you look at the back of your worship folder, you can see our current uh, financial state, and uh, we're trusting the Lord, but want to be able to partner together with each and every one of us to, to, to do the Lord's work and, and extend the ministry of Trinity. And as we leave, I want to share just one uh, brief passage with you, if I can open my Bible while holding a microphone in my hand. You act like I've never done this before, but here we are. But uh, let me share this uh, from the word of the Lord. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray together. 